This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, welcome to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, thank you for all your nice messages about the podcast after the last week or so. It would be a huge help, a little early Christmas present, if you posted a review on iTunes. It helps with the mumbo-jumbo charts. Uh, so, yeah, go to iTunes, post a review. That would be lovely. Well, after all that speculation, weeks, months, if not years, of wondering which way it was going to go, we finally got the answer. Keir Starmer is not the basis of Mr Darcy and Bridget Jones' diary, according to Helen Fielding. That's the big news of the day. Uh, on the other thing of, uh, of Brexit, uh, we await news. Um, I think we just need to work out if the fish can land on the level playing field. It still seems to be the main uh, thing. In the absence of any progress on that, we've been talking about by-elections. Uh, this year is only the second year in history when there's been no election to the House of Commons. No general election. I mean, they come around most years these days. Uh, and no by-election either. So we're talking about the joy of by-elections, including speaking to to the woman who was an MP for just five months after winning a by-election and then losing her seat uh, shortly afterwards. Uh, so that's coming up in just a sec. But first, our columnists panel. It's Monday, so it must be Liberace. It's Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Let's start with Brexit, but uh, this question of what the Labour Party might do. Um, it's all a bit of a muddle. Keir Starmer sounds like he wants to back a deal, even though we don't actually know what it is. Uh, you had Len McCluskey, uh, the United General Secretary, was on Times Radio over the weekend saying that he thought Labour should back the deal. Annalisa Dodds, the Shadow Chancellor, uh, says that Labour perhaps shouldn't uh, back a deal. Um, could we end up in a situation where Keir Starmer is, is just as confused and fence-sitting as Jeremy Corbyn was on Brexit, uh, Rachel? Uh, yes, I think the problem is, I think he does know what he thinks about Brexit, unlike Jeremy Corbyn, but he's worried that he's on the other side of um, the fence from some of those um, voters in the red wall seats that Labour lost to the Tories at the last election. Um, but the danger is, I think the, the danger for him is in, is in looking inauthentic. Um, so if he votes for a deal that actually he probably in his heart of hearts thinks is a bad deal, uh, that could come back to bite him in another way because he'll end up looking like, um, you know, he's he's back something that he doesn't really believe in and also could end up to being a very bad deal. Uh, and I think to, to have Len McCluskey on his side would be 
unusual and maybe rather uncomfortable for him for once. I know the Labour Venn diagram just got a whole lot more complicated with that. Um, uh, Libby, what do you think? Because, I mean, there's part of me that just thinks maybe Keir Starmer's overthinking this. The opposition's opposed. That's what they're supposed to do. And he could say, of course we uh, um, accept that Brexit is happening, but this is a duff deal, as in when we get one. It seems an odd thing that they're having an argument about whether or not to back something when they don't even know what it is yet. I think he can say that, but I don't think that necessarily affects um, the matter of voting. I think there's a big risk of the opposition of Labour sounding like the negative party, the grumpy party, the we hate everything party, because we are where we are. You know, Brexit is happening. Any deal is probably better than no deal. And uh, I, I think that should be accepted. Um, maybe he could he could sort of unwhip it. He could just sort of say, OK, everybody, you know, you, you vote whichever way you you like to vote. Uh, but I, I think there's a difference between saying this is a lousy deal and I wish it wasn't happening um, and uh, actually voting against it, which would which would be basically voting for no deal or plunging us back into the utter nightmare of the Theresa May years <laughs> where nothing could ever happen under any circumstances ever. Um, no, I think I think he, I'm afraid, you know, the, basically they, they probably just got to vote for it, hold their noses and then try and think of some positive things to suggest and promise. You know, I see very little positivity in the Labour Party at the moment and that's depressing. Do you think, um, Rachel, the, the, Keir Starmer basically needs to find a way that gives him the space to say that he didn't try to stand in the way of Brexit right now, but in six months' time he needs to be able to say, well, I did say it was a duff deal. And it's it's a, it's a sort of, you know, he needs to try and find a way through, through that bit. Mm, mm. I think Libby's right. It would be a mistake to vote against it because you're basically faced with deal or no deal and faced with that choice, you don't want to risk... Um, ending up with no deal, uh, which would be worse than having this, even this duff deal. But I think but he could abstain, which would send the message that um, we don't think this is a good deal, but we're not going to risk no deal. We're just withholding our support. Uh, and it's on your head, Boris Johnson, this deal and all the consequences of it. The problem that the reason they're worried about that is it looks like they can't make up their minds on the biggest issue of the day. Uh, but given, I'm not sure that when it comes to the next election, people will really be thinking about Brexit or how Labour voted in this particular vote on it. Um, they're going to be much more focused on how their lives have improved or not in terms of the economy, in terms of jobs and things that actually make a difference to people. So I think Libby's right. They need to have something positive to say on domestic issues. Uh, and maybe abstaining would be the way through it and then move on. The, the risk, though, with abstaining is that because having done it last week on the COVID restrictions and then if he does it again on Brexit, it becomes an easy attack line for the Tories that you just can't, yeah. you know, on the big calls, if you're Prime Minister, you can't sit them out. And it, it's striking, if you look at the um, YouGov polling, since April... So April to November, the proportion of people who think Keir Starmer is indecisive is doubled from 12 to 26%. Albeit, uh, currently 65% think that Boris Johnson's indecisive. So these things, you know, are relative. <laughs> but, but if it becomes a sort of, if the Tories can get up this idea that when faced with a big decision, Keir Starmer sits it out uh, and he's not ready to, you know, show the leadership, the size of leadership the country needs, that could become more damaging rather than the individual, um, you know, instances. You, you're right, you know, exactly how someone voted on the second reading of whatever. It doesn't matter quite as much. But the, the, the sort of the mood around him could be damaging, Rachel. Mm, that is a danger, but it's sort of all about lesser of two evils at the moment on these things. And if he ends up voting for a deal 
that he thinks really is a bad deal, that's not being honest. And, and that I think the voters detect that much more. I've, there was some very interesting polling um, in the red wall seats recently where the support for has switched from Labour to the Tories quite significantly. I, I wrote the figures down. So it was a, a year ago, it was 48% back the Tories, 39% Labour. Now 47% Labour, 41% Tories. And a lot of that is to do with this sense that the Conservatives um, are still the sort of party of the rich who see the um, people, the, they think the rules don't apply to them. The Dominic Cummings trip to Barnard Castle was hugely um, influential, was really stuck in people's minds. And I think the voters do latch on to the sense if you're not being honest, if you're not being straightforward, and that almost underpins everything, that sense of authenticity is very important. And if Keir Starmer ties himself to a deal that he thinks is a bad deal, that could end up being more um, damaging than a sort of short-term sense that he can't make up his mind. He's got plenty of chances to show he can make up his mind when he starts having some positive policies. Yeah, and like so, well, all being well, with some way off a off a general election. Uh, let's um, let's uh, move on, uh, Libby. Were you out shopping at the weekend? Were you amongst the, the hundreds of people outside Howard's? Well, not, not outside Harrods, no, but I did. I, I shoved on the rhinestones and slap to go to London for a weekend of three theatres. And I have to say, uh, Covent Garden was heaving. Um, and of course, there was enormous demonstration, which nobody seems to be mentioning, outside India House. Uh, the whole strand was blocked up with, with cars and, and crowds mm. of Indian, uh, Indian campaigners outside India, India House. And I think, I think there is a, there is a real risk now of people just sick of social distancing. I mean, I see quite a lot of obedience in the kind of decorous places where I go and indeed down where I live in Suffolk. But I, I got a sense that London was starting to seethe and that people are just not willing to do it anymore. I think this is a very great shame on the verge of a vaccine because there are plenty of sensible distancing things you can do. And I, I, but I, I think this sense of sort of seething, angry impatience, you know, quite separate from whatever mad flash mobbery was going on at Harrods. <laughs> there was Harrods, there was this Christmas market in Nottingham as well. It is, it, it, oh, it, yeah. I mean, well, why, why open a Christmas market now? I mean, it was obvious what was going to happen if you opened a Christmas market now. Um, people crowd. That's what you do. It's my favourite thing is crowding at a Christmas market, but I wouldn't this year. Yeah, and that's, that's sort of the problem, isn't it? That if, you, if you launch a Christmas market, you wanted it to be a success. And the definition of success is a lot of people turning up. And then a lot of people turn up and then they have to cancel it. Um, it does seem a sort of slightly strange uh, state of affairs. What about you, Rachel? Are you out and about shopping? No, I feel really frightened about the thought of crowds like that, actually. It's sort of strange. Um, and the la lack of masks and that, that sort of thing. But, I mean, the problem is the government has sent out so many mixed messages, hasn't it? So it's one minute it's eat out to help out. Then it's stay home, don't go out to a restaurant ever. Then it's Christmas is on because, you know, we're going to have a special exemption. Shopping is on. Uh, no wonder the voters are confused. You know, it's the lights at the end of the tunnel because of the vaccine, but no, don't go out yet because the vaccine's not here yet. It's just incredibly confusing. And I, I think it goes back to this fundamental conflict in Boris Johnson himself that he wants to be able to be the great liberator who, you know, allows Christmas and lets everyone go shopping and adores the thronging crowds. Um, but he's also, he's he, he can't, he can't, as Prime Minister, do that. But he is still sending the subtle message that it's OK. 
Uh, and no wonder people are confused. No wonder people want to get out. There's an inconsistency from the government. Exactly. Get out there and support. And over the weekend, we had lots of Tory MPs tweeting, I'm out shopping. Get out and shop. Support mm, your local business. Almost like it's your patriotic duty yeah. to get out and shop. Well, and then you, you get out there you know, and um, told, what are you doing? Exactly. <laughs> get back indoors. Right, Libby, you mentioned um, why you were in London you? over the weekend. You've, you've gone back to uh, the West End theatres. Yes, so it's not not for the first time either. I mean, uh, the the theatres have been kind of creeping back uh, gradually, often with two-handers and uh, quite short hour, 90-minute things. Uh, But Cameron McIntosh decided, as indeed as the producers of um, the the Jamie play have decided, wanted to bring back Spectacular to the West End to prove it could happen. And I have to say, it is... I mean, I find theatres terribly safe at the moment. Uh, The the distancing, the sanitising, the incredibly careful ushers, the whole whole way it's been put together has been exemplary. It has lost money. I mean, the commercial theatre has been absolutely gallant. Andrew Lloyd Webber and Cameron McIntosh, Nika Burns, uh, Nick Heitner down at the bridge, they have really sort of laid it on the line and tried to start performing again and worked out ways. I mean, they had to knock through backstage between two theatres. Oh, that was amazing. So the backstage that. area was yeah. bigger. And and they're, they're doing all this stuff. They're losing money on it, actually. They're just determined to do it. And I find this because I, I believe in, in the live theatre very much, I, I find this actually admirable. And the subsidised sector have been far more timid, the National Theatre far more timid, only just starting a tiny bit up now. You know, the RSC obsessed with streaming. Um, but my piece today is a kind of peon to the importance in both theatre and indeed cinema, because cinemas are under threat now too, uh, the importance of us all gathering in the Great Hall together and feeling and empathising together and having this big emotional experiences together, um, which I think some people, one or, one or two on, under the line, are sort of saying, oh, we don't need this at all. I can sit at home with my television. I'm quite happy. Um, I, I think it's important. I think it's a big part of human human experience. And I'm totally up for going back now. I mean, not least because I think the theatres have been quite extraordinarily careful and responsible over their precautions. And nobody's caught anything in the theatre yet that we know of. And you make the point, which I thought was a really good one, is why Why do we go to this? Yeah, we, we could watch films at home before if we wanted to, but we still went to this. And you make the point, you know, we concentrate more, there's fewer distractions of mm. uh, snacks, pets... Um, although there were occasionally snacks in cinemas. Um, uh, and you also made the point that we're sort of less fidgety. We just sort of sit there, you know, yes. you don't drift it's off it, and you don't scroll through your phone. And that all adds to the pleasure of enjoying the thing that you're watching. It seems to me very important, this business of uh, what used to be called in my convent school, you know, custody of the body, you know, where <laughs> you will sit still because you don't want to distract other people. You're sitting still, you're sitting in tents, and as in church and as in a cathedral, as in any great gathering, probably right back to Anglo-Saxons in the great mead hall listening to Beowulf, this business of sitting still and concentrating actually does something to your mind. You know, we're animals, it's all linked together. And uh, I think that that is very important, and I, I see it a lot in theatres and I see it in cinemas uh, unless there's some very badly behaved people in which case I'm a real old bat who tells them off so uh, it is important this element. Uh, What about you Rachel are you rushing back to the theatres? I haven't yet but I can't wait actually and what you say Libby really encourages me to go Um, because there is that sense of the shared experience I think it's not just the sort of intellectual what's happening on the stage or what's happening on the screen it's that collective emotional experience which you know the sort of intake of breath or the shared laughter the emotions that you have 
um, as an audience, whether that's in the cinema or the theatre, is so fantastic. And it's it's that it's it's much more um, intense experience than watching something at one step removed. I've watched some of the national theatre things that have been put onto the television during the lockdown, and they're just not the same. I remember One Man, Two Governors was absolutely brilliant in the theatre. There was a sort of spontaneity, laughter, audience members apparently being dragged up. It's just not the same when yeah, you're watching it in that. your sitting room, yeah. you know, with the cats, <laughs> um, <laughs> as you say. Well, if there's and cats it's, in my so sitting room, um, something's gone horribly wrong, but yeah whole experience when you're there yeah no i'm i'm hoping to go uh my good friend will uh is he's in panto every year um and, and uh the the um firm he, he always does panto for are doing one but unfortunately they're doing it in tunbridge wells which is which is obviously in kent which is currently in tier three uh so we're, mm. we're fingers crossed for the review on uh, december the 16th that they come out there um uh, libby that's obviously your column in the paper today any any hints as to what your column might be on tomorrow rachel well, I'm slightly in a limbo of Brexit. Is there going to be a deal or no deal? Um, but I'm I'm going to try and write about Brexit and what uh, the negotiations have told the world about Britain under Boris Johnson. And it's not very good, I can tell you. That was Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Up next, the joy of by-elections. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap we're cutting the price of mint unlimited from 30 dollars a month to just 15 dollars a month give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch 45 dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees promote for new customers for limited time unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows full terms at mintmobile.com this episode of politics without the boring bits is brought to you by luton rising owners of london luton airport the uk's most socially impactful airport Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, the joy of by-elections. Now then, elections. They used to come along like buses, didn't they? You'd wait ages and then you'd get run over by a bright red one being driven by Boris Johnson. But amidst all of the, what should we call it, fun this year, you might have noticed we haven't voted for an MP at all in 2020. Uh, so we've not just avoided a general election, although we've had three of those in the last uh, five years, but there have been no by-elections either. Nobody's resigned, died or gone to jail. Uh, this is only the second year in history that this has happened. The last time was in 1998. So, having been deprived of the thrill of a by-election when the Westminster Circus turns up in a town for a few weeks and every passing shopper suddenly becomes a key barometer on the state of British politics... We thought uh, we would talk about by-elections. Yes, it might be the kind of thing that real nerds get excited about, but by-elections are also an important tracker of how parties are doing in the middle of election cycles. So we've been deprived of that this year too. In a moment, we'll speak to some political nerds, nay, veterans of the campaign trail, The Telegraph's Christopher Hope and Times Radio's very own John Pienaar. But first, to explain why by-elections are so important, we've got 
what it says here, electoral nerd in chief, Tim Bale, professor of politics at Queen Mary University <laughs> in London. Hi, Tim. Hello. I think. <laughs> I think there's quite a lot of competition for that particular <laughs> title, but anyway. <laughs> As will become uh, apparent. So first of all, just explain, for, if people don't know, what is a by-election and how do they come about? And, and, and as a result, why have we not had one this year? Well, a by-election is any election that is fought between general elections. And as you hinted earlier, uh, they normally come about because an MP uh, has to resign uh, or an MP uh, dies. Uh, And uh, one of the reasons that we don't get so many these days is actually MPs are a lot healthier (laughs) than they used to be. Uh, And uh, that, to some extent, explains why uh, they're becoming less and less common. And obviously, in the year immediately after the general election, as 1998 was after the 1997 uh, uh, New Labour landslide, it tends not to be unusual for someone to finally get into Parliament and then immediately uh, resign because they've got other things to do. So it might, normally it might be deeper into the Parliament that somebody resigns and goes off for another job or because they've got themselves into trouble. Absolutely right, yes. Um, of course, you know, there are more possibilities now that it's possible for voters to recall their MP. But as we know, that doesn't happen uh, as much as people thought it might do when they pass that legislation. And so what do, what can by-elections tell us? Because, uh, you know, and, and how can parties exploit them? I mean, particularly, I was sort of thinking of the Lib Dems. There was a time when they sort of existed almost solely in by-election form, but, um, but, but sort of managed to build up a sense of momentum by winning a few of them. And I suppose uh, without by-elections, they're slightly deprived of that. Yes, I mean, that's absolutely true. For third parties, they really can give them the oxygen of publicity that's actually very difficult for them to get at general elections when the media tends to concentrate on the big two. The the, um, Liberal Democrats and before them, the Liberals and indeed the SDP made an absolute speciality of winning uh, by elections. And some of them were quite significant, at least in terms of the knock on effect on government behaviour. So a very famous one, for example, was in 1962 in Orpington when uh, the Liberals um, took a seat off the Conservatives, caused absolute panic uh, in the Macmillan government. And then uh, 81, we had Shirley Williams win Crosby for the SDP, uh, which, of course, made a lot of people in the Labour Party panic as well. <laughs> and I, I think there's an extent to which Actually, that's the biggest single um, thing about by-elections. It's the message they send to you know, the big two parties uh, about what they're getting wrong and what they need to do to put it right. Well, thank you. That's Tim Bell there, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University. Well, let's speak to somebody who won a by-election, in fact, for the Lib Dems, Jane Dodds. Uh, hiya, Jane. Good morning. So, Jane, you won the Brecon and, Badge, uh, Brecon and Radnorshire by-election in August last year. But you were only actually in the House of Commons, what, four or five months before you lost the seat at the uh, 2019 general election. So what's it like fighting a, uh, a by-election, first of all? Well, I think there's a couple of things. One is that um, it's great fun. Um, you have people from all over the UK come and join you. Um, the second is that it's quite uh, exhausting. There's a, you, you know, a lot of energy is required. Um, and I think the third thing is that there's an amazing sense of focus to what you're doing. So, yeah, it's, it's a great time if you're a by-election candidate. And the sort of the, the, the entire Westminster bubble sort of descends on, on you. Um, how did you fight it, find that? Because there's sort of a lot more focus on you as a candidate than perhaps, you know, there would be in a general election. That's right. You have to make sure that, um, you know, you're available constantly all the time. Um, you are kind of staffed. And that was something that I certainly wasn't used to. Um, so, you know, people kind of surround you. A lot of media interviews, a lot of media uh, time. And of course, for me as a by-election candidate, 
in Brecon and Radnorshire. It was a very unusual situation, as your previous um, correspondent was saying. This was one of the few by-elections where it was called because of a recall petition. So it, there's only been two of those, and um, this was this was one of those. And there was a good chance that this was going to change hands. So the previous recall petition uh, didn't change hands at all, but there was a good chance that this this was going to change hands. The other thing was that it, of course, it was about it was about the EU. It was about Brexit. It was very much focused on, uh, you know, could we change the landscape by um, winning the election? And we overturned a majority of 8,000 and we got a 2,000 majority from that. So, yeah, it's an incredible time for me personally. And I do not regret it one <laughs> iota. Well, that was going to be my next question, because obviously in the middle of uh, last summer, it was all very exciting for the Lib Dems, you know, surging in the polls, Labour and the Tories were tanking. You win this, uh, you know, iconic, uh, by-election victory, uh, taking the seat from the Tories, and then it all sort of unravelled within um, a, a few weeks, uh, and you ended up losing the seat. But you, you don't. I, I mean, you are now, you are now leader of the uh, of the Lib Dems in Wales, so you know things have all worked out all right in the end. But um, uh, how did that feel with the high and the low to come so so close together? Oh, look, I, I had a theme song, if I'm allowed to say, yeah, from the film Dirty Dancing. It was the last song I've had the time of my life. <laughs> and I still, I mean, I played that when I was allowed on my own in the car, driving around country lanes of Brecon and Radnorshire. I would play that at volume whatever. Because I did, and I still, looking back on it, I did, you know, that I don't regret it at all. Incredible privilege to go into the House of Commons. We reduced Boris Johnson's majority by one, if you recall. Um, that, that started then. That then. People going in, coming over to us, people, you know, leaving, people defecting. It did cause a bit of a, a um, you know, a change, I think. Um, yeah, and it was an incredible time going into the House of Commons, very febrile atmosphere. Of course, we had the prorogation. We had all of those votes. Um, yeah, and an incredible time. No regrets. <laughs> I like, I'm very pleased to hear That's Jane Dodds there, who's the, uh, now the Lib Dem leader in Wales, but we, she won the Brecon and Radnorshire by-election last summer, only to then lose the seat uh, in uh, the general election uh, last year. Up next, we're going to speak to two people who've been out and covered... Well, well, we'll try to establish exactly how many by-elections in just a sec. John, Times Radio's very own John Pena and Christopher Hope from The Telegraph. They're up next. Times Radio Breakfast with Asma Mir and Stig Abel. Well, it's a crunch week, although we've decided that it's crunchier than normal for Brexit. It's a crunchy breakfast. <laughs> That's what we'll be doing as the talks get closer to some sort of conclusion. But we're not only going to talk about Brexit, No, are we, no, Asma? no. We're going to talk about the vaccine as well, aren't we? The first day it will be pushed into someone's arm in this country and the first step towards freedom will be taken. What about people who have phobias of needles? They're going to have to just suck it up, <laughs> metaphorically. Yeah, it doesn't go in your mouth. No, don't suck it up literally. Suck it up, have the vaccine, and we can all go back to shops and restaurants again. Breakfast with Asma Mir and Stig Abel. Tomorrow morning from 6 on Times Radio. Times Radio with Matt Chorley. So we're talking about by-elections and uh, the coverage for the first time since 1998, only the second year in history. There's been no general election or by-election uh, this year. Time has run out. A general election can't be held before Christmas, uh, which is something. So uh, I'm joined now by two people who know the rigmarole of a by-election better than anyone else and have often been dispatched to cover them. Times Radio Drive's very own John Pino is here in the studio. Hi, John. Hi, Matt. And uh, Christopher Hope, the chief political correspondent for The Telegraph. Hi, Chris. Hi, Matt. Uh, nice to have you with us. So, John... Um, it used to be that when a by-election was called, 
um, every paper broadcasting outlet had a sort of by-election correspondent. They'd pack their bags and decamp. Yeah, I mean, you, um, you, one, of, one of you would be sent down and you would embed, rather like a, a correspondent embeds with one or other force in the course of a war. And you travel around with the regiment, you stay there, you live the life and you, and you just end up living like a, a Pontypridd resident <laughs> or someone from Wirral South or from <laughs> Eastbourne for a period of weeks. And I, I really miss those days. And not just because they were incredible fun, if you happen to be the journalist, but also because they were fun for a reason. And the reason was that they mattered, that by-elections actually mattered. There was a perception that this was a a test of public opinion, a a message to the big parties, as Tim Bale was saying, and everyone had to listen. And just on the other side of that was that parties had to send a message. And so each day, wherever it was, let's say the party in power, the government would send down a senior minister to come down, walk about a bit with the candidate, and then sit on a platform like a coconut in a shy, <laughs> while, while a, a bunch of lobby journalists would sit there lobbing their balls at the coconut. And they just, they just bore it with or without a grin. It was a kind of accountability, and it meant that the result really mattered, and the coverage would, be, would get regularly on the airwaves, and it would get regularly in the newspapers. That now seems a very long time ago, because partly I think Parliament isn't regarded in the way that it has been in the past, and also because parties have wised up. Just as you find in communications with any government, any government now, they do not feel an obligation to put up a minister to take it every morning and every afternoon, whatever the situation. They simply don't. They certainly don't feel an obligation to send a big hissing politician down to whatever by-election it happens to be to face awkward questions from smart Alec journalists who are determined <laughs> to knock them off their feet. Uh, Chris Hope, of all the smart, smart Alec journalists in the lobby I can think of, you're, you're, you're probably one of the uh, more successful in, in uh, dislodging some of those coconuts. Um, which by-elections in particular stick in your mind uh, as being uh, good to cover? Well, I, I, the most recent pass was basically UKIP against the Tories, which has been a quite a fun, was quite a fun thing to follow for the past 10 years or so. Um, and how they, they kept failing, didn't they? They tried in, they, they won uh, Rochester, Rochester and Strood in, in 2014, but um, in Peterborough, you know, I think back to the Brexit Party in uh, that was shortly after the, the in, in June last year. Would you believe it? When Lisa Forbes, <laughs> it feels like, feels like much longer ago. Yeah, Lisa Forbes, Labour's Lisa Forbes beat Mike Green, the Brexit Party. When really that was the one the Brexit Party had to win, and they didn't. And the, the problem for these um, startup, I mean, these startup parties is they have no data. They have no idea where any voters live who might support them. So they have to just basically just flood the area with activists. They, cut, they don't know what, what they're doing. And, and often, often it's the established parties um, uh, get back in. I was struck by what John was saying there. My experience in the past 10 years of covering these things, but I've covered them since 1993, is that they do try and keep the candidates away from the press pack. So often, for example, when Robert Jenrick was fighting um, uh, his Newark by-election, um, uh, back in July 2014, I think it was, and he beat Roger Helmer. Then um, we we couldn't find the the, the candidate. I mean, UKIP <laughs> were fine, you know. His Helmer, he's striding around down the road. We, we'd w- walk behind him or in front of him, trying to trip him up with questions. But we could never find Jenrick for the entire thing. So latterly, they've been trying to hide these candidates. And if you think of an area, a big area where around 75,000 people live, often you just can't find the the, the, the key candidate, the, the, the government's candidate of the day. Um, John, does it? I suppose if if one came along now, uh, maybe in one of those red wall seats, it, we might decide it, it that they mattered again. The one that really sticks in my mind was in two thousand eight, Crewe and Nantwich. It's a Labour held seat. Uh, 
it used to be that party leaders didn't go and campaign, but it became a thing. Gordon Brown was going to go, David Cameron was going to go, and Labour sort of mounted this top hats and toffs campaign against the Tories. Yeah. I think David Cameron even put his name on the on the ballot. It was like David Cameron's Conservatives, <laughs> and he won it. And that was seen as a okay. The Tories are coming back. They've got a bit of wind in their sails. And actually, if there was a if there were to be for whatever reason a by election in one of those red wall seats, and Kirst and Keir Starmer's Labour Party won it, we would then. Probably, you know, uh, put too much importance on it and yeah. read too much into it. I, 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 yes, we would, I think, because that's a, an example of a particular geographical, geopolitical area of the country where this would be a good example of where you could go and tell the story. Uh, that doesn't mean that the, the government or the Labour shadow cabinet would send down a big hitter every day, even, even then. You'd see a lot of attention on election night. You would see interviews with this or that politician during the course of the three-week campaign. And the likes of you or me might just parachute in and parachute out. But that's not the same. Even then, the same as a bunch of journos turning up in hired hatchbacks <laughs> and herring around the country just trying to cause mischief, largely to amuse themselves and, and, hope, and, and hopefully amuse their readers and listeners as well. You've just, just described Chris Hope's entire existence. Um, <laughs> Uh, which is which was um, what do you think has changed the most, uh, Chris, um, in the way that parties approach them? And because is it, I mean, is part of the reason why they don't send down their big hitters is, is frankly the people we might consider to be nobody's no normal person. Let's be honest, is going to turn out and you know line the streets because Robert Jenrick or Alok Sharma were in town. Well, exactly. I mean, no one really, outside the bubble, no one really cares who they are. I mean, the, the fun of them is you do create a mini gang of you. So uh, I do remember that the, the famous Black Cat Cafe on Rochester High Street became a mini newsroom. We'd always, we'd always find the nearest plug, plug point. A colleague of mine, Sam Coates, used to walk around with an enormous great four, four um, long uh, plug point. We could plug into a cafe and then we'll, we'll all gather around him and plug our, our, our machines in. And then we'd sit there so watching Twitter. And some would shout, oh, the guys out in the street would, would run out and then we'd try and, um, and harangue them with questions. And it would just, uh, and then, of course, Farage would turn up, you know, with a fag dripping from his lips and would ask him how many Tory MPs he's trying to sign up to join his party. This is when Brexit was a big issue for the Tory party. Um, and then I remember uh, quizzing uh, Ed Balls in some porter cabin and, and getting some story out, out of him. I mean, um, it is just it is just great fun. Um and, uh, you know, and they play the, the best what fun is when they try and engage with, with, with the press pack following them. Um, and there is an attempt, I think, to try and see a, a meaningful national narrative in, in these stories. And often they become, uh, you know, famously Crosby, Shirley Williams, 1983. That was a big breakthrough with the SDP at that point. And there's all sorts of examples when, you know, the Lib Dems particularly um, surging again in 1993 with uh, Diane Maddock winning Christchurch. These are, these are moments when, when the political dial turns, and, and, and John's done more than that than I have. Yeah, I mean, you made, a, you made a point, Matt, which is dead right, that nowadays, if you look at look at the top rank of politicians, who's heard of any of them? And people would take that, you know, maybe fairly, as a bit of a commentary on the quality and the weight of the cabinet that we got at the moment. And that might be right. But equally, there's never been a time when people recognise too many faces in the, in the cabinet. <laughs> we, now, just, we just pretend that they do. We, we, we kind of <laughs> pretend that they do. Right now, I think if you ask people... I'm pointing at the city of London through the window there. There's no one there anyway. It's been no. locked down forever. But if you go down a high street and ask people to name three members of the cabinet, they'd probably struggle after two. Um, and that, I think, would, be, would have been the case 10 or 20 or 30 years ago too. Even at times when, you know, um, dinosaurs like me would say, oh, they had big hitting politicians back in those days. Yeah. People didn't know who they were and they never, never really 
have or especially wanted to. Difference now, if you send a big hitter by, in our terms and someone can squeeze a word or a line out of them, yeah. then it's going to make copy, then it's going to make bulletins, and then people, even if they don't care who they are, they'll be paying attention with the time it takes to read or listen to that piece. Yeah, what the problem the... is, I think, that the, 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 the parties recognise after a while that the national press just don't matter because the only people matter are the you know, the 75,000 people who live in, in a seat and it's their votes that count. So they would try and hit the local papers. So we try and get in there with the local papers, find out where the, where the, where the big hitter, that the Michael Gove arriving, where's he going to be and find out and get sun outside and just haranguing with questions as he, as he emerged. So yeah. it was a bit of like, we were sort of just trying to just find a needle in the haystack, but, but we have to be quite, quite clever about trying to find them. But they won't answer the questions, will they, Chris? They'll just no. they'll just sort of smile and keep going. We'll get back in our hired hatchback and head off for lunch. <laughs> right, well, okay, but that, that's that's the attempt to try and get a story out of out of covering a by election. Let's speak to someone who tries to stop stories coming out of by elections. Uh, Giles Kenningham uh, was a Tory uh, press officer, often dispatched uh, to look after the candidate and protect them from people like John and Chris. Hi, Giles. Hey, Matt. How are you doing? I'm very good. I'm very good. Thanks for joining us. So, explain what it's like being on the inside of of a, of a by election campaign. I think, like you said, when you're in opposition, they are potentially perceived to be a game-changing moment. I remember Crew and Natwich when Ed, Ed Timpson won, and that was sort of, sort of seen as a, a watershed moment. When you're in government, um, there is a sort of a, an impending sense of dread because normally incumbent governments get kicked in by-elections. There's a huge opportunity cost because they take up so much time. They suck up so many resources. But I remember when there was a slew of them in 2014. Um, Patrick Mercer had to stand down. Uh, in a lobbying scandal, and uh, Robert Jenrick uh, took, took his seat. Then there was Mark Reckless defecting to UKIP uh, on the eve of Tory conference, conference in 2014, and Douglas Carswell. And they were all in the space of four months in the run-up to an election. So they cost a lot of money, huge opportunity cost. There are a couple where we thought we're just not going to win, but we're going to have to really throw the kitchen sink at it because it's going to upset the party if we don't look like we're fighting it. Um, and then there are like some fantastic thick of it, thick of it moments. One that really stands out for me is getting in a cab uh, for the Rochester by-election, which is when Mark Reckless defected to UKIP. Um, and we said to the cab driver, oh, you know, who are you going to vote for? And he said, well, I'm not going to vote for the um, Tory, Tory MP round here. It's been absolutely rubbish. I'm going to vote for the UKIP guy. And of course, <laughs> that UKIP guy was Mark Reckless, which kind of, <laughs> kind of summed it up. And then the other thing which which always sprung up quite a few amusing sort of moments with a vetting of candidates when you had to go through everything with them to see if there was anything embarrassing in their past. And I remember one candidate, we said to them, you know, is there anything in your private life we should know about? And this person said, uh, well, yeah, I was a member of the debating society at university. So it sort of looked, looked, at, looked at quite some nonplussed and sort of said, yes, well, and? And she was, well, you know, what happens in debating societies, which I was kind of like, well, we'll no. Anyway, it transpi- transpired they were a hotbed of debauchery. Preconception that we should know that all this stuff happens at debating societies. So, yeah, I mean, they are. And, and as, sort of, as you said, like um, I think Chris was saying, really, you want to hit the local press. You don't care. You know, you're trying to avoid the national press because you have these candidates often who are heavily exposed, haven't had much media experience. And then, you know, uh, a screw-up and it kind of defines defined the narrative. So they are always a, a bit of a circus. You mentioned there, Giles, um, you know, Robert Jenrick came through on a, on a by-election. There's quite a lot of, um, you know, front, front benches on both Labour and the Tory sides who come through that way. Is it, is it just a sort of baptism of, of fire, which means that if, if you can get through a by-election campaign and all that extra attention, 
um, you can you can go on to greater things. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think the thing with them is, I remember with Jenrek, obviously he was, I think he'd already been selected for that seat because Mercer was going to stand down at the next election. But then all of a sudden there was this big lobbying scandal. Patrick Mercer had to resign. He was parachuted in. But I do remember on that by-election, we were kind of like, if you mess this up, that will be it. You're not going to get another chance. So to your point, yeah, I suppose if you do well, it, it puts you on the national platform. But also, I think if you really screw up, you don't recover. It's like, not like fighting an unwinnable seat and fighting another seat afterwards. So I think there is a fair amount of trepidation um, with people. And there is more vetting, which goes into sort of or more is more rigorous training, which goes into sort of trying to prepare the candidate for these things, because you get this tsunami of media on them. I think with Edward Timpson, uh, in 208, as I think at the start, I think he didn't know what had hit him, hit him at all. <laughs> and that was all the top hats and top hat and tails and Tory toss and all. Uh, just finally, then, if we do, we think that we. I mean, it, yeah, it'd be exciting from our point of view if there was a by-election, maybe next year. Uh, there obviously now can't be one um, uh, this year. What do we think of the state of politics now, John? Would the Tories win? At, you know, if it was in. Well, down in the southwest, could the Lib Dems mount a comeback? Would Labour win in a red wall seat? Well, we can probably rule out the Lib Dem mounting a kind of Newbury, Eastbourne, or anything remotely approaching anything very interesting where the Lib Dems are concerned. You know, that's not to be uh, facetious or dismissive of the Liberal Democrats. It's just where they are at the moment, which is more or less nowhere. And maybe that'll change, but it ain't changing at the moment. So it'll be about the geography. And I think if there were to be one of those votes in the red wall seats. We started with that in the conversation. That would, I think, be fascinating. That would be properly exciting. It would. It, yeah. I mean, there's evidence, some, some polling evidence, which, show, which shows that a lot of the voters who voted Conservative in those red wall seats did feel they were lending their votes uh, to the Tory party. And a lot of it had to do with Jeremy Corbyn. It wasn't just about Brexit. And he's gone. And some of those people in those northern seats will tell you now they think the feel on the streets is completely different and they'll be well-placed you know, it's four years off, so a lot is going to change before that time. But they feel that that area has shifted significantly in the way it's thinking and feeling. Uh, what about you, Chris Hope? Well, it's all in, in, why, why we have fewer by-elections is because the MPs are healthier. In the <laughs> old days, they all basically were complete, you know, a lot of them were boozers, smoked a lot. So you could, you could look at about an accretion rate of a few a year would be bumped off. And that's why, why John and I would have seen uh, John Major's majority decline um, in the mid '90s, to, to zero by '97, because basically they 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 died, and now we have a, we have a younger, uh, I think I'm guessing it's a younger um, cohort of MPs, and also they're a lot healthier because of all the all the all the vegan diets they're on in the, <laughs> the morning. So you you don't still keep your overnight bag in the office just in case, Chris? No, but I, I do. I absolutely love a, a by-election. I think they are they are such fun, and, and that's why you know any journalist nowadays you get out from behind the keyboard and ignore Twitter. And just um, and breathe the breathe the free air of crew in that witch. That, that's how you that's how you see life lived. <laughs> well, I've absolutely loved this. I mean, it's proper nerd territory, but it's nice to talk about something <laughs> away from the news agenda. John Peter, Times Radio's very own John Peter. John, you'll be here from uh, four o'clock tonight. Uh, what have you got on your show this afternoon? Uh, uh, Brexit, Brexit, and more and more Brexit. There we are. There we are. Uh, plus, Chris Hope from the Telegraph. Thanks, Chris, and uh, Giles Kenningham, former Conservative uh, press officer, uh, talking to us. There, we also heard from Jane Dodds, who. Um, won a by-election last summer and then uh, probably lost a seat in the general election uh, in December. And before that, uh, electoral nerd-in-chief, as we described him, Tim Bale, uh, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University in London. Oh, I enjoyed that. It's nice just to take a step back and wallow in some political nerdery. I hope you enjoyed it too. Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times Radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1.00. 
Uh, you can listen on DAB Radio on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.